Amen. And uh, kids, kindergarten through second, if you want to start making your way out to your story time. And as you go, I want you to help me out really quick and tell me, do you know this song? When I was a kid in church, we used to sing a song that went, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Uh, yeah, where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my I've got the joy. And I know that. Like I had to have a discussion with our worship leader because I don't we don't sing that song. But I'm glad to hear at least some of them. Those were some older voices though, so maybe the kids don't don't know that song. That was always one of my favorite as a kid because my my role was the where, and I love to chime in on the where. But we don't really sing that song. And I wonder maybe it's just kind of maybe is it a little too silly, or maybe we're a little too sophisticated, or maybe we're a little too grim. An old country preacher that I knew used to say when we'd sing that song, he'd say, uh, some of you got the joy so deep down in your heart, your face don't know about it. <laughs> but our Advent theme is the theme of joy. And, you know, when you think about Christmas, just certain words come to mind. I mean, it's joy, joy to the world, peace on earth, joy, peace. So our, our theme is going to be joy. And our text, we're going to take a break from Exodus, and our text is going to be Philippians. And as we do, I just want you to think about, all right, there's two things we'll have to think about initially. But first off, I mean, is there anybody here who does not want more joy in their life? I mean, there's just certain things that if they're offered to you, you should never refuse. I feel peppermint bark is in that category. That you can never have too much. And if it is offered to you, it is just your obligation for being alive is to accept it. And you think, all right, who, who doesn't want more joy in their life? Especially in the reality that so much in the world, and we live in a world that can be filled with just downers and disappointments. Or setbacks and failures. Disaster and despair. So we're seeking joy but when we think about, all right, joy, what are we actually going to be talking about? It's interesting to look at different words used to try and describe joy and some of the, the roots of those words, like in uh, English and other Germanic languages. This is way in German. So we have the word happiness, but the root for happiness goes back to the old English word hap, which means luck. So things that just happen to you can cause happiness, same in German. I was intrigued this week to learn in a couple of Scandinavian languages. See, if, if you missed it this past week, we had two days of winter. <laughs> and it's over. That's it. That was your one chance to wear your, your, your hoodies and your snuggle blankets. But there, in one of the Scandinavian languages, the word for happiness at its root is cozy. So you can just think, I mean, if you live in a frigid environment, you know, that moment where you finally just get cozy is happiness. So what are we talking about when we talk about joy? What we're not talking about is we're not talking about just kind of a sentimental happiness. We're not talking about a silliness that sees all of life as a joke. Or we're not even talking about kind of the sarcastic sneering that's so dominant in our world now. We're going to talk about genuine joy. A joy that can transcend circumstances. A joy that's not dependent on the, the people around you or the possessions that you have. 
Charles Swindoll summarizes the book of Philippians. He said it's the goal is to encourage Christ-centered, spirit-empowered joy. And each of the four chapters give us a different angle. Chapter one is all about the joy, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered joy in how you live in the midst of challenging situations. Uh, chapter two is about joy in serving. Chapter three is about joy in sharing. And chapter four is about joy in resting or finding contentment. And that's a good framework as we'll look at these. Uh, we got four services, so uh, this one this week, next week, and then two on the 17th. So uh, make sure you make note. We'll have normal Sunday morning services on the 17th, then our Sunday, uh, Sunday night, our candlelight services is, is the 17th. And we're going to look at these different aspects of joy. So chapter one, we're going to look at all right, what does it mean to have joy in living, joy as we live. And so let's uh, get a little background because Paul's writing the book of Philippians, and it's been called many times, it's the book of joy. But what's interesting, you go through the book, and one of the reasons it's called that is because it's one of the dominant words. You know, there's 104 verses, and 16 different times is either joy, rejoice, or kind of gladness language, which is pretty good, 16 times out of, out of 104 verses. But what really struck me this week when I was going back through it is joy is a central theme, and it's used about 16 times, but the name or a title for Jesus is used 55 times. So he speaks Jesus' name once every other sentence. And so maybe the central, the central theme is Jesus and the joy that flows out of our union and our relationship with him. So let's think about joy and some of the background for Philippians. Now, it's important to remember that um, Paul is writing this from probably one of the most joyless places you could experience on earth. So I don't know if when you think about, all right, where is there any certain locations that are just kind of soul-sucking, that you just walk in the door and just like all of your vitality for life just drains out of you? So like the DMV is that way. And there's other places that don't really foster joy. I feel bad. Some of you med students, you're going to have to really fight because sometimes hospitals can be a place where it's, it's hard to find joy. Uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in prisons, but I imagine prisons aren't a place that are just a, a greenhouse for gladness. And Paul is writing from house arrest. He's, in essence, in prison. And one of the central experiences of his time that he looks back in Philippi was in prison. In, in a dungeon. Do you remember part of the way the church was planted? Because him and Silas were falsely accused, uh, unjustly beaten, unjustly thrown into prison, and in prison they're singing praises. And then there's an earthquake, and they, uh, they don't get set free because of the earthquake, but there, there's this earthquake as they're singing praises. So he was arrested, beaten, thrown into prison. And, it, you know, Paul can look back on that, just that experience and have a lot of good reason to be bitter. You know, angry with his enemies, resentful of his friends. Were they there to really help him? Unhappy with his circumstances, upset with God. Like, God, why is this happening to me? I'm here to serve you. And that was his situation in Philippi. And then this is 12 years later where he's under house arrest again uh, in Rome. And he writes four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, and these are all in, in the context of one of the most joyless places you could be. Anyways, Philippians is a kind of unique letter. He's, he's not um, 
He, he's uh, not answering any profound theological questions or solving any naughty practical problems or dealing with specific sins. He's wanting them to wrestle, how can you find joy in the midst of any situation and circumstance? So that's our theme in chapter 1, and we'll look at it a couple different ways. How do you find joy even when things aren't going your way? And if you want a theme of chapter 1, or maybe the whole book, is verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And to die, the worst thing you can imagine, death is even gain in him. So Christ must be the center. Christ is the source. So we live in a superficial age with lots of frivolity and empty laughter and very shallow, but there's little real joy. So our theme is how do you experience deep, real joy? So a couple ways to look at it. Let's look first in verses 3 through 11 as Paul finding joy as Paul looks back on his life. So kind of think about three, three time frames. How do you experience joy as you look back? Think about the past. As you look around your current circumstances. And then as you look forward where you're headed. So joy as we look back. We'll start, Paul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your fellowship, your partnership. This is the word, the koinonia, your, your fellowship. We're together. Your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. So 10, 12 long years we've been together in all these trials and tribulations. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it or perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all fellow partakers or partners that, again, we, we're, we're together in this. With me in this grace. For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in full knowledge, in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ Jesus, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So we'll look at this just from the angle of, of joy and jo Paul's joy as he's looking back. And you can just kind of feel the emotion, the affection, and the love that he has for them. And I'm amazed by that first phrase, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Whenever I think about you and remember, I am so thankful. And this joy is not inspired by some type of like vague, quasi-unrealistic nostalgia. Like, I'm not sure where, like, our kids, so my, my girls multiple times over the last several months have asked if I lived during the 80s. Like, yeah, I was alive. And like, oh, weren't the 80s just awesome? Weren't they the best decade? Like, I'm not sure why, where you heard, I'm, uh, I mean, they were okay. I would, wouldn't categorize them as the best decade ever. But there, you know, we do have a world where, like, throwback things are or there's, there's a certain strange nostalgia for throwback things. This is not just strange nostalgia. You know, what is he thankful for? He's thankful because they were participating with him in the gospel. He looks at their past perseverance, their present passion, 
and is confident in their future faithfulness. Notice some of the things he says, you know, I am confident, verse 6, that God has begun a good work in you. This work of spiritual growth, this work of ministry participation, this work of faithful Christian witness. But it's all revolving. As he's looking back, he's thinking about the things that he's thinking about is their, their partnership. You are with me. We are together. There's a withness that in some sense is kind of hard to articulate and summarize. One thing uh, Cynthia and I have been talking a lot about, just it's kind of hard to articulate. Trying, uh, Paul's been so great to help us try and find words as we think about uh, uh, looking for a, an associate pastor. What is one of the things we're looking for? Trying to find this sense of withness. Just like so we're, we're together in this. And as he looks back on the last 12 years of his life, there's a lot of things that Paul could have fixated on to remember. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, in all of my remembrance, I think about how disappointed I was when I arrived at Philippi and there was no synagogue. I mean, y'all didn't even have enough people to gather and bring a, to have a quorum of, of men to have an actual synagogue. There wasn't enough. And he doesn't think, as I look back on my time, I'm so disappointed. Do you realize how aggravating it was to have, he would know her name, we don't know her name, who was demon-possessed and was following us around screaming, these are servants of the Most High. Do you realize what it's like to preach when you have a crazy person screaming in the audience? Oh, he doesn't say, all right, I remember how, how upset I was that we were unjustly arrested. We were falsely beaten, falsely accused, thrown into prison. We had to run out of Philippi for our life because people were so upset with us. He doesn't recount any of those things. What does he choose to remember? I remember our partnership. I remember that you were with me through all of those trials and tribulations. And if you want to get a kind of catalog of Paul's sufferings, you can look at 2 Corinthians. I mean, he had been through it. But those aren't the things he fixates on. He remembers. And he, he turns that remembering into thankful, joyful praying for those who have been with him the whole time. You know, I love the specifics of his prayer, just the things he, he prays for. He's got this deep, joyful contemplation of them and it prompted him to pray for very specific things he prays that their love would grow more and more but then he gives these banks so it's like the love is the river the energy but with all knowledge and discernment you know, actually this is a task for the trinity research team but i think there might be more like thinking cognitive language than even joy language in philippians you read all through it, and he's talking about, here's the things I want you to know. You need to think this way. I am convinced of this. I want you to know these things. You have to have the mind of Christ in you. Think about yourself this way. And he wants their love to be this, this energy, this flowing river, but it has to be banked with uh, knowledge and discernment. And those are the things of the foundation for abiding real joy. So for this first point, I think the key application for us is Paul could have looked back and recalled all types of things in his remembrance of his life with them in Philippi. But what he focuses on is on their conversion, their faithfulness, their growth, their participation in ministry, their continual perseverance. He looks back with thankfulness. 
So if you really want to experience joy, one of the habits to cultivate is how can you look back on your life with gratitude, especially for those people that have just been with you. They've been there through the thick, through the thin. They look back. So that's how we cultivate joy as we look back. How do we cultivate joy as we look around when you look at your present circumstances? Now look, starting in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances... All right, what are his circumstances? His original desire was to go to Rome as a preacher and to take the gospel to Rome. Well, he made it to Rome, but it was not as a preacher. It was as a prisoner. And why did he get there? It was because of some kind of conniving things that were done in the background where uh, he had to flee in different places. So uh, he's, his desires and things are not panning out like he had hoped. So how does he view this current situation and circumstance? I want you to know that my, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Like it's, it's progressing. This is not how I would have written the story, but it's, it's going forward. And so that my chains in Christ have become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard or Caesar's Palace, his household, and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, and the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from, from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains." What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by my death. So he looks around at his current situation and finds reason to rejoice and to celebrate. You may one of the most famous memoirs of the 20th uh, century was Viktor Frankl, his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was a uh, psychologist who was uh, caught in World War II and was put in a, um, I think he survived Auschwitz. He was in one of the concentration camps and uh, wrote about his experience and really it gave, you know, it gave him this incredible laboratory to study kind of endurance and who, who, can, who can endure difficult situations. And he says this, he says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. He said, some become playthings of circumstances, and their inner peace is tossed back and forth. And he said, but you can, the last of the human freedoms, so that you can choose your attitude in the midst of any circumstance. So how does that happen? Like, how can you do this? And one of the things I think the, what makes the gospel unique and what makes Christianity so unique is it points you to the power where you can live that as a reality. And the reality is whether you're in Christ. See, the, circum, the external circumstances are not as important as the internal reality. Over 20 times in the book, of the 55 that talks about Christ, it has the, the preposition to be in Christ. 
to be in him. I love it in verse 1. You can easily see where he says, all the saints who are in Christ at Philippi. And you realize if you're a Christian, you always live in two locations. You are in Christ no matter where you are at. So right now you are at Lake Nona. You're, you're at Florida. You're at, you know, Laureate Park Elementary School. But if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And as long as you are in Christ, no matter where you are at, you have access to peace and calm and stability and strength. And what Paul, he's embodying and expressing how, what it means to be in Christ and have Christ's mind in you. And so you think, all right, how could he, how could he not feel frustrated right now? And I said his great ambition was to go to Rome and preach the gospel. Instead, he went as a prisoner. And as a Roman citizen, he had the right to be treated with fairness and what we would call kind of due process of law. But he had been mistreated, falsely accused, unjustly arrested. And on top of that, on the way there, he'd shipwrecked and nearly died. And yet, here he is joyful. And this little section gives us kind of a window into three different things that he can still be joyful in the midst of, in the midst of hardships. You know, I love in this phrase, there's, there's no pouting, there's no woe is me, there's no, oh, these chains. I'm in chains. You hear how we tell you uh, four times these chains, but they're not this intolerable restriction. The very chains have become a megaphone to proclaim the gospel. And then now it's going out to places and into ears that never would have heard it if he wasn't arrested and in prison. I mean, you can imagine how annoying it would have been to have been one of the Praetorian guards where you had Paul as your prisoner. I mean, every change into the guard is a new opportunity for him to tell you the story of how he went from the real king's enemy to his emissary overnight. And everyone would have heard him preach and pray and read and dictate these letters. And they would have listened as he conversed with others who came to him about the consequences of sin and the, the new birth that's offered through grace and faith in this Christ that he loved to celebrate. And so what Paul's enemies had intended for evil, God had turned for their good. So is your joy dependent on an easy life? Paul's life was not easy, and yet he was so joyful. And then he was also joyful even in spite of the ill will of those around him. He just gives us a little window, and it's, it's kind of tantalizing because you would love to know more. But while he was stuck in house arrest, it seems that many people had kind of picked up the mantle of leadership in the different churches he had tried to plant. And some were doing it uh, out of uh, healthy, honorable motives, and others seemed to be doing it to try and kind of take over and hijack the ministry. And in spite of it all, in some sense, he doesn't care as long as things are moving forward and Christ is being preached. And it's interesting because they meant ill will for Paul, and yet he can still be joyful. Can you still be joyful even when you're surrounded by people who are trying to hurt you? So in spite of the ill will. And then regardless of the uncertainties, did you notice uh, he's confident that this is going to work for his good, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. He said, I'm confident that because you're praying and I've got the spirit of God in me that something is going to be for the good, but it could be my life or it could be my death. He's in the midst of incredible uncertainties, but he still finds joy. And you all know one of the hardest times in situations to be joyful is when you're living life in limbo, where you just don't know 
what's next. That's exactly where Paul was, living in limbo, and yet he's still joyful. And his joy is rooted as because I'm in Christ. You see that in verse 13? So my chains in Christ. In Christ, our attitude to our circumstances can change. In Christ, he can deliver us from our preoccupation of the opinions of others. In Christ, our priorities and passions and plans and pursuits can all be transformed and we can uh, not have any fear of what the future holds because he is holding us. We're in him. But then the third thing, notice how he's joy in looking forward. In 20 and 20, uh, 21 through 26, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So that's the, that's the core operating principle. But what should he do next is not really clear. This is an interesting passage because it brings us into some of Paul's emotional wrestling. He says, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, if I'm going to keep on going, then that's going to mean fruitful labor for me. But here that I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I will choose. Like do a, to, in one sense, to die would be better but to keep on going. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, and that would be so much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I don't know what to do. I'm in a dilemma. And then uh, verse 25, and convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. So we're drawn into, in one sense, some internal uncertainties. We said, I don't know what to do. Do I stay? Do I go? You know, you enter into those times of deep dilemmas. Another season in which it's really hard to hold on to your joy is when you feel torn. Not torn between something good and something bad. That's kind of obvious which one you want to choose. But torn between two good things, these deep dilemmas. And it's almost like you can see Paul kind of doing a cost-benefit analysis. Or, you know, when you have difficult decisions, sometimes, okay, what do we do? Let's make a pros list and a cons list. And you kind of see that. He's like, I've got two choices. Do I want to depart and be with the Lord, or do I want to stay here and continue, uh, continue fruitful labor for you all? It's like, what are the pros and the cons? All right, the, the pros of departing is that I will die as a martyr in imitation of Christ. I'll instantly be with him in glory, and I'll be free from the pain of this world. So those are the pros. All right, what are the, the liabilities, the cons? I'll be absent from those who need me. I'll no longer be a living witness for Christ. I'll leave a gap among the apostles. So maybe I should remain, but there's some, there's some liabilities. There's some cons there. I'm absent from the physical presence of Christ. I'm absent from the heavenly glory. I continue to struggle and suffer in this world. But then what are the benefits? The benefits are I can continue to have a fruitful ministry. I can provide security and hope for the believers. I can train up the next generation of leaders. And so you can kind of see them. I don't know which to choose. And then there's some, some, some moment, something happened, maybe as he was writing this or his time in prison where he got that moment of clarity where he says, all right, here's, this is what I know, but I'm hard-pressed, but then in 25, but I'm convinced of this, that I will remain and continue for your progress and your joy. And so the question kind of for us is, all right, how do you maintain joy when you feel you're caught in a dilemma? kind of torn between two 
opinions. Put down here on the sheet a couple dilemmas that you maybe have faced this past year or maybe some that you might have to face this year. You might be in a situation, you kind of face a vocational dilemma. You know, what do I do next? Pulled this way, pulled that way. And it doesn't always have to be kind of occupational in the sense. It could be that could be in a season where uh, a spouse is ready to start the family, but you have two more years of graduate school and you're pulled. Maybe you have two job offers and both are very attractive. You're pulled this way. You're pulled that way. Or maybe this year you'll be put in situations of emotional dilemmas where you're emotionally pulled and you, you don't know what to do. And this can have a whole range. Some kids, I was talking to some neighborhood kids recently who their dog is experiencing a lot of pain and their parents were trying to break it to them that they might have to put the dog down. And the kids are wrestling with this emotional dilemma like I don't want our beloved dog to be in pain, but I, I don't want them to go away either. So we, at every stage in life, you can get pulled into these emotional dilemmas. Or maybe here, such a transient area, is just a geographical uh, dilemma. Do we stay? Do we go? We're here for this season, but that comes to an end. What do we do? When you're in those times of emotional dilemmas where you can, um, or different dilemmas where you can sympathize with Paul, where you say, I don't know what to choose. There's two things, and I don't know what to choose. And the beautiful thing about this is that God can use them in all types of ways. He can use them to teach you. So you learn to trust him more. You learn to call out to him more. You, you learn to recenter your life on Christ, and you can return to Paul's core commitment. For me to live is Christ. I don't know which to choose, but if I choose this, for me to live as Christ in this, or if I choose this, for me to live as Christ. Either way, to live is Christ. And what I love here is once Paul was kind of out of the, the mental fog in verse 25 and 26, he could look forward with confidence. He gained clarity on how to move forward, and that gave him confidence to act. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the, in the Lord of the Rings. It's just at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, and uh, Aragorn is just fumbling kind of all over the place and is feel so discouraged. Merry and Pippin have just been kidnapped. Sam and Frodo have been taken, and he doesn't know which way to go. Like, do I follow Sam and Frodo to try and help them, or do I pursue Merry and Pippin and try and rescue them? And he kind of cries. I was like, everything I'm doing is wrong. Every choice I make is, is an ill-begotten choice. You ever feel like that at certain times where it's like everything I seem to do seems to backfire? And then eventually when he has that moment of clarity and decides to pursue Mary and Pippin, uh, him and Gimli and Legolas go on this incredible chase, which is worthy of songs to go check them down. But he needed kind of that moment of clarity to pursue. And so maybe God in those times of dilemma, you can ask him, help me have that moment of clarity. But either way, for me to live as Christ. That's what I pursue. That's who I'm going after. And then whichever path you put me on, I will run. So as I look at these three, I'm sure every person in here, one of the three, uh, which, which do you need more help with this Christmas season? There's looking at the past and being free. You know, even though Paul was in prison, his past was not a prison as long as the past can, be a, can imprison us, that's one of the themes of Exodus. 
How do we get Egypt out of them once they're out of Egypt? And so maybe the past. And so how can God use that? Who was with you in that season? And maybe it's the present. As you look around and say, all right, how can these circumstances that I'm in right now, it can be turned for my good and his glory. How can that happen? Even if I feel like I'm in chains and I'm stuck, there are certain things that I can do and I can control. What are those things and how can I commit to those in such a way that's going to honor him and bring good to others? And then maybe or maybe I'm uh, worried about the future and not sure which way to move forward. It's in Christ, that I trust that however we go, whichever path we take, as long as I am in him, then I am safe and secure. So here at Trinity, every week we come to the Lord's table, and one of the things that the Lord's table is, is our weekly reminder of what does it mean to have Christ in us, and we are in him. That's why we physically take the bread and take the cup, and we eat it and drink it, because it's reminding us that the core of our hope and the very source and center of all of our joy is that we are in him, united with him by faith. So I'll pray, and then once I'm finished praying, our servers will come. We'll have four stations, two in the front, two in the back. There'll be a gluten-free station in the back, and then you can go and partake. But Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of joy that is offered to us in Christ. So I pray for everyone here in this room. I pray for whoever uh, is wrestling with their past and their certain seasons or situations or people or places that they don't look back fondly with in all of their remembrances with joy. I pray that you would free them and help them to uh, have an eye for what they should be thankful for and increase gratitude and remind them of who was with them even in the difficult days. I pray for the people in this room who are anxious about the present. And just like Paul, there's certain things where they feel uh, just chained and that they can't change this or they can't move this way. I uh, pray that those uh, limitations would not be seen as um, paralyzing restrictions, but they would see those as, as tools that you can use for their good and your glory. And I pray for anyone here this morning who uh, their future is not clear. And they're hesitant and there are multiple paths that are placed before them and they're not sure which way they should go. I pray that you would uh, burn in them this conviction that we see that Paul has that for me to live is Christ. And whatever comes, it, it's gain. And so uh, free them up from the fear that might keep them uh, immobile. And do all these things and hundreds more through the power of your word and the presence of your spirit. This way, we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.